You are listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, hosted and created by me, Imani, a researcher. This is the podcast for people who research people. Today, I am talking with Michelle. I currently work at Microsoft on the education uh, research team. Um, So basically, I uh, work with uh, students, teachers, school leaders, sometimes IT admins, all to um, kind of be uh, the person kind of advocating for the customer and making sure that we're building the right things, we're building things in the right way, the designs are usable, all sorts of things kind of relating to uh, bringing the voice of the customer into our products. Before being on the education team, I was on another team doing similar things at Microsoft, but kind of across a lot of different teams. And then uh, before that, I was getting my master's actually in education technology. The program is called Technology Innovation Education, but basically ed tech. And then before that, I was a teaching fellow in a Chicago public school. Michelle is going to talk about researching and designing with neurodiversity in mind. She's going to focus on neurodiverse students, but there will be a lot of takeaways beyond that specific population. I think there are a bunch of different definitions of neurodiversity. So the one of the definitions that I, off the top of my head, kind of use, um, neurodiversity is the idea that everybody is kind of on a spectrum in how their kind of cognitive processes work, um, how they're kind of just like how their brain works. Um, For example, you might hear like the autism spectrum. Um, Someone on the autism spectrum might identify as neurodivergent, whereas maybe someone, somebody else um, might say they're more neurotypical. Um, But really it's kind of something that a person decides that they are that they identify with. Some say it kind of contrasts with like the medical model of like, you know, like this is my diagnosis, but it can also work hand in hand as well. They might say, yeah, I'm diagnosed with autism spectrum, with being on the autism spectrum, but also, um, you know, I identify as being neurodivergent. It's just kind of acknowledging that there naturally is just kind of a wide variety of ways that people's brains might work and process information. When you were explaining what neurodiversity was, I noticed that there is a subtle nuance between neurodiversity and being neurodivergent. What is the difference between those two? Sometimes people use those words in the same way. Um, The way that I use them just for kind of clarity's sake is uh, neurodiversity. I think of as there is diversity in the way that, you know, our brains are processing, our brains are working. Someone who is neurotypical might be contrasted with someone who is neurodivergent. And someone who's neurodivergent might um, be on the autism spectrum. They might have ADHD. They might have dyslexia or dysgraphia um, or even some who have like generalized anxiety disorder consider themselves to be neurodivergent. I'm When I use neurodiversity, I'm kind of speaking about kind of the whole spectrum and then with that kind of on each side. And the answer to this next question is seemingly obvious, but I still want to talk about it, especially since you're a UX researcher in the education space. Why should designers and researchers design and research with neurodiversity in mind? I think it is super important for a number of reasons. One, I mean, first off, I think we should just be inclusive. That's a big, big thing at Microsoft, but also I think just like across the tech field, we really want to have our products 
whatever we're designing work for everyone. What's interesting is that some people might say, well, isn't that just like a few people maybe, Uh, or maybe not a few people, but like not very much. And actually um, a very large percent of the world is neurodivergent. But then also there's principles of inclusive design where you can design for, I think the principles design for one extend to many. And so if you design for those who are neurodivergent, it can actually then help everyone. That principle of inclusive design, you can also think of as like um, for physical accessibility, like if you build a ramp, you design maybe for the people who are permanently in wheelchairs, but it kind of extends to many where you, if you're on crutches for a day or a week or a month or however long, you know, it helps those people as well, maybe, or someone who's temporarily in a wheelchair, or it extends even to, okay, now it's helping women who push their kids in a stroller. And so the same thing can kind of apply to kind of cognitive processes and kind of designing for them and extending to many. There are a lot more people who are neurodivergent than you expect. And even more people are starting to identify that or identify as that. For example, like in uh, the world of pandemic and COVID, people who are depressed and people who have anxiety, that's really increasing as well. And they might also identify as neurodivergent. There's someone who could be, I guess, more permanently neurodivergent and someone more situationally neurodivergent. I think you use the example of someone who's in a wheelchair who may be wheelchair bound as opposed to someone who is able-bodied, but they're on crutches temporarily, right? That also counts. um, That example or that analogy was also, that stood out to me as well. You know, I haven't actually thought too much about like what would be situational neurodivergence. I think it's more of a description of like, like, I don't know if anybody would say like, you know, like you're not like temporarily on the autism spectrum or not, but yeah, that would be really interesting to think about. Yeah. It'll be a good research topic. (laughs) (laughs) Where can designers usually better support neurodiversity in products? It's interesting when I talk about like designing for neurodiversity or developing for with neurodiversity in mind, um, a lot of people jump straight to oh, like, can we, you know, like Microsoft has an awesome tool um, called the Immersive Reader. And it was designed, you know, for people with dyslexia, ADHD, and they think of like these specific products for them. And those are awesome and great and actually have been shown to, again, be useful, not just with those who they designed for that product in mind, but also the research that I've been doing has been more focusing on the idea that Every product that's being used is going to be used by um, those who are neurotypical, those who are neurodivergent, those who maybe don't even know what those words are. And we want to um, have every product used and coming from the education team, I thought about it in terms of students, but every product used by students should really have these principles in mind to make our products more inclusive, just make them better in, in general. And so like things like, Uh, Microsoft Word, Windows, Edge, Teams, like those things that aren't necessarily built for students, you know, they're built, built for information workers and consumers and students and teachers. Those can all kind of utilize certain principles to just make them kind of even better. That's from the perspective of designers, right? And now because we are researchers, when creating a research study for a neurodivergent end user, whether it's a student or not, do you pull from secondary data a lot? Just before I answer that question, I guess like 
design and research and even PM kind of overlaps. I think anybody can use these principles. Like I think, you know, the designer are the ones like making that decision about the design. So they're kind of probably the primary um, ones that could be using kind of these principles. But I think we can all keep these principles in mind. Like a researcher might use these as um, kind of a heuristic review tool. And I've had PMs, you know, learn about these principles as well. And devs and everybody can kind of advocate for a better, more inclusive design. In terms of coming up with kind of these principles that I've been referring to, um, I actually started with a bunch of secondary research. I would say I'm no expert. You know, I'm still in like a, the early stages of my learning journey about neurodiversity and about things like autism spectrum. And there's so much knowledge about out there already. Um, and so I was reading blog article articles by those who are neurodivergent, um, articles from professionals in the field, also pulling from uh, just the general inclusive design principles also reading about universal design, um, which is a principle or theory, um, a way of thinking that's pretty closely related to inclusive design, but it's kind of more geared towards education. And a lot of it is um, talked about when you're talking about like making lesson plans and things like more inclusive for uh, different students. I'm always curious with UX researchers who do use secondary research because I don't hear that a lot. Which sources do you pull from? Like I assume academic journals, scientific journals? Yeah, so it was a combination of professional websites from known kind of bodies. So like uh, organizations that are like well regarded in that field, sometimes like scientific journals. Um, sometimes blog articles and you have to be, you know, careful about that. But like in this, in this circumstance, you know, reading about like firsthand perspectives of those who are neurodivergent or consider themselves neurodivergent, well-regarded and like research, like tools, um, even like internally, like the, uh, Microsoft has published externally though. And, but a lot of research went into like the inclusive design principles, be careful of what you're reading. Like you can't just go to like a random website and say like, how many people are neurodivergent? You know, you need to also kind of triangulate and like double check, you know, like who's your source, where are you getting it from? But it's not just like scientific articles. Mm-hmm. Evaluating your sources is really important with secondary research, which is why I think a lot of us probably avoid it. It kind of feels like you're back in school, right? Like writing your paper. <laughs> yeah. And like when I was doing that research, like it was pretty niche thinking about like, okay, how do we design for neurodiversity for students? And so sometimes, you know, I read about adults and like started just kind of like gathering some information. And it was really important to me that when I was sharing the kind of like first round of my results that I said like, hey, this is secondary research that I might have overgeneralized, you know, like it's not always like specific to students. And so I need to really do follow-up research though directly with students to really validate what I've put together here. When when I say that like this was designed with students in mind, like there were some things that kind of applied specifically to younger users, um, but also some of the principles just apply in specifically like a school setting where some of them talk about like how do teachers support these students and how do we build in supports for the teachers to then support the students. Yeah, and also the idea of starting off with secondary research, pulling out evidence from that, and then using primary research to validate what you found. 
yeah um, that's also logical way as well it's like the it's like the ux researchers version of the scientific method <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly we're like scientific method light <laughs> yes <laughs> and when we had spoken previously offline you mentioned that there were four categories of how you think about designing for neurodivergent students number one was engaging with tech and screens Number two was interacting positively with this usable UI slash UX. Number three was growing and excelling as a student. And number four was getting support from and with adults. So I want to talk about all four, but we'll start with engaging with tech and screens. Yeah. So tech and screens are probably the best and worst things to happen to our world today. <laughs> um, it's a different experience, obviously, for people who are neurodivergent. And what are some things we should consider in terms of how neurodivergent people engage with technology and screens? I think one of my the most important ones to call out there are, it kind of is counterintuitive, but one of the, the guidelines was, let's think about how to actually allow them to be on screens as little as possible if they desire that. Um, you know, I've talked to some students where they're like, no, I, you know, I struggle with uh, paper, I struggle with writing, being on a computer is really helpful for me. Um, but there are also some students, um, for example, I spoke with some this week that had ADHD and they said, you know, I actually can really focus a lot better if I have that pen in my hand, the paper in front of me, and I want to do my homework on that. But how do we build into the technology then the ability to easily kind of utilize that paper tool? So in, for an example, with assignments, if they need to turn in their assignments online, can we allow them to easily do that assignment on paper, but then get that physical work that they did easily into that computer to then turn it in? Minimizing screen time, ironically using paper. Um, yeah, so providing breaks and limiting distractions is also um, really important. When you think of limiting distractions, you know, you might think of someone who has ADHD, could be other um, people with other kind of conditions as well. When you are on a screen, you might get tired, you might, you know, need a break, whether it's kind of for you're getting frustrated and for your mental health, or maybe you're just getting tired. And so how do we allow them to kind of take a break off of that screen or on the screen too, um, and then allow them to easily resume? So things like as simple as autosave, you know, like that allows them to easily take a break and resume. They don't have to think about oh, is this thing saved? Okay, let me go to the file, let me save it. You know, they can just take a break really easily. You can maybe go even further though and maybe provide like some educational tools or not educational tools, also kind of build in like deep breathing breaks into their experiences. So like, how can you even like go above and beyond and kind of bring that mental health or kind of that aspect to it as well, which kind of ties into a later kind of uh, set of guidelines as well. I like incorporating breathing, like breath work, and also the idea of just taking breaks from the screens. I think that's a very realistic and reasonable way for us to live in our world where we kind of can't, where we, where we can't totally avoid using screens. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very realistic way to approach it as opposed to just not using them altogether. So I like that idea of, yeah, we can use it, but we'll take breaks, breathe in between, <laughs> we'll use paper when we have to. I think that's a really reasonable way, especially when working with youth, um, especially neurodivergent youth. Yeah. And again, like kind of going back to like design for one, extend to many, this extends to not just students, but maybe like a busy mom who is like, or an information worker who's like busy with all sorts of things. And maybe they're not taking a break for the same reasons. Maybe it's not for, you know, I'm tired or I'm overwhelmed, but maybe it's like, oh, I need to go like 
check on the dinner or I need to, or my coworker stop by my desk. And so like you're, you see that these things start having more uses than like what you originally designed it for. And then, so we talked about engaging with tech and screens mm-hmm. and then next we're going to talk about interacting with usable UI UX. I imagine that these considerations apply heavily to both neurodivergent and neurotypical populations, but how can designers design products that are accessible? Yeah, a lot of these things you'll think like, oh, isn't this just good design? And like a lot of these principles, yeah, I think it's just good design. But again, like I want to call out like a lot of these things that are like extra important or again, it's kind of a lens to understand good design. Um, So things like not having a big chunk of text and using too much text, but really utilizing visualizations making sure that when you have a button or um, an update that it's really understood, like what is going to be the outcome of that? It can be really anxiety provoking to just say like update. And it like, it's like, what's going to happen? Is this going to change my whole day? How is this, how long is this going to take? Can we be really clear about the expectations and the outcomes? Try to reduce the anxiety. You know, these are only some of kind of the elements you can think of, but again, kind of making things really simple, making things like clear and predictable, making things a little bit more visual can be some of the things that you can think about. Offering tactile uh, experiences and feedback is another one where, for example, students with autism, students with like ADHD sometimes kind of enjoy or um, find it easier and kind of focusing to be able to use their hands instead of just like typing. Um, again, everybody is different. I've t- spoken to some students where they're like, no, it's actually really hard for me to write, especially on a screen. But some students really find um, benefits and be able to use a touch screen or things like that. Integrating content creation and consumption supports and tools for students is also super important. So things like text to speech or speech to text can be really uh, useful. It kind of goes back to kind of related to universal design for learning. There are so many ways that you can kind of interact and um, interact with your content, uh, express what you're learning. Um, So you want to give kind of a variety of options to uh, the students for kind of both creating and also consuming content. So creating, they might want to use voice to text, or they might want to write, or they might want to maybe do like a video or a draw. For consumption, text-to-speech can be really helpful for also kind of easily consuming content. So, you know, those with dyslexia can really benefit with from text-to-speech, um, for example. Creating proper error states and messaging, explain errors and kind of the next steps, uh, overlaps a little bit with what I was talking about, making kind of experiences kind of simple and intuitive. Um, and it's really about that those air states kind of when a pop-up comes up. Um, So it's kind of similar to what I was talking about with like a button. What is the outcome of that? Why is the air state coming up? Like what is happening? Um, How do you explain kind of what's happening in a way that doesn't put it on the person and create more anxiety or maybe guilt? Um, It's like, hey, this thing is happening. Uh, This is why. Maybe even here's how you can avoid it in the future And clearly, here is how you can fix this and proceed forward. Don't just say, like, 
error 8250 whatever urgent like oh my god the world is exploding (laughs) um which like is a little bit of an exaggeration but sometimes there are error states that say that and so like being mindful to avoid those sorts of things i think it's important and what i'm teasing out from what you're saying is how researchers and designers and also product managers how we ideally we all work together to create experiences that mitigate stress that or hopefully ideally eliminate stress, eliminate or mitigate um, anxiety. And you would never think that maybe getting a certain pop-up would cause those reactions, but it can. Um, I'm also thinking about even outside of education, when um, I use like my banking apps, if you get an error message that doesn't make sense, you're like, whoa, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I didn't never, I never thought about it that way until you said that, that a part of our job as researchers is to help mitigate that sense of anxiety or that you feel, or that sense of people feeling like they're dumb. Um, so yeah, that, that clicked for me when you were talking. Yeah, exactly. Again, another kind of example of, I mean, I don't even know if you're you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, but like you can imagine someone who's neurotypical can benefit from this as well. Exactly. If you are an aspiring or current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, professional brand, interview skills, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. Coaching clients exit the program with a refreshed resume, cover letter, research portfolio, and detailed notes to make them more competitive in the UX research job market. If you are interested or know someone who is, visit yizzyresearch.com to learn more and apply. That's yizzyresearch, Y-Z-Z-I, research.com. Oftentimes, I would imagine that a lot of designers and researchers in the education space don't ex- don't always explicitly believe that their work helps students excel and grow. Uh, we don't oftentimes see the the impact our research and design has. How can we enable neurodivergent students to grow and excel? So we can build a lot of things into the technology to not just have students like make it through step by step, fix an error, whatever it is. Um, But we can build some things into the experiences to really help them grow and excel as a student. Um, So the first one is providing kind of scaffolding for forming habits and executing on executive functioning skills. And so that's a little bit of a mouthful, but I can break that down. So basically, like when I say executing on executive functioning skills, executive functioning are things like planning and organization And those things that kind of help us be, you know, successful students or teachers or whatever we are, even outside of like work in academia. Um, We really need to build these kind of executive functioning skills. And these might be things that students who are neurodivergent might have a a little bit more, um, it might take a little bit more effort to like build those skills and we can help them with that. So building in things like Uh, the ability to break down an assignment into multiple steps or plan out like their their time to work on assignments a little bit more or for forming habits, like can we uh, allow them, give them the options to set more reminders? But again, we don't want to build for them and say like, this is, you know, you need this, this, uh, Um, scaffolding or you need and scaffolding meaning like kind of a support 
Um, we don't want to like build those in so they don't have the option to turn them off. So like we want to provide flexibility and for example, like notifications and reminders and allow them to have the autonomy for like how much they want the support, what supports they want, things like that. Another one for growing and excelling as a student is creating as many opportunities for social action, social interactions um, between students as possible. But again, you want that kind of autonomy to not require them. Um, students might be overwhelmed with social interactions. But in addition, students with, for example, autism, they often benefit with practicing and having social interactions, but again, when they want to. And so a tool like Flipgrid, if you haven't heard of Flipgrid, it's used in a bunch of schools and it allows students to kind of post prompts and, or sorry, teachers to post prompts and the students respond with uh, a video of themselves. And if they want, they can turn off the video. It could just be audio. It's really fun. They have like stickers and filters and all sorts of things. And so it allows students to kind of post these videos and then in return, a student can post a video back or they can post a comment back. And so creating these opportunities for kind of these social interactions, um, especially like in remote learning, it was really important to have these ways to like still get these connections uh, is really important. But again, it's not like a required thing unless, you know, the teacher decides so. Um, and the last one for growing and excelling as a student um, is supporting kind of uh, incorporating social emotional learning as much as possible. So mm -hmm. thinking about um, they're in Teams for Education, there is a tool um, called Reflect that allows students to help identify kind of what emotion they're feeling and share that with their teacher. And I think it helps both build kind of uh, the skills of uh, being able to identify their and communicate their emotions. Um, but also builds in, you know, if the teacher is seeing that they're maybe sad that day, they can then uh, provide that one-on-one -on -one support in that way. Um, we can also think about building in kind of, uh, I mentioned earlier, kind of opportunities for kind of those, like in the breaks, can we breathe, build in like deep breathing exercises and, like, and things like that. So that's important as well. You had mentioned earlier, you're not an expert in like the, the neurodiverse research space, but have you worked with like wellness experts or like yogis? I'm just curious because like, um, I know like breath work, like breath work and mental health, wellness, mindfulness, those seem to be more in that space. I was just curious if you have ever interacted with them in the research capacity. Not in a research capacity. Um, like I've done yoga myself. Actually, I take that back. I, so I did work on a hackathon a couple years back. It was with, it was um, with some people from the Minecraft education edition team. Um, and we built this like world and this kind of lesson plan called the mindful night. Um, and it was basically like this night that's on a quest and doing different, like, I don't know, parts of a quest and bringing the word there to build kind of mindfulness and like good skills for kind of like, uh, for mindfulness. So when one part was like deep breathing, one was kind of being mindful of like your surroundings and like what you're seeing and what you're hearing and feeling. And so we spoke with one psychologist there. I would have loved to kind of, the then the Minecraft team kind of took it over and they spoke with many more psychologists. Yeah. When building the reflect tool, 
Um, I wasn't involved in the early building of that, but they, I think, definitely spoke with like professionals then in, in that space. There are so many ideas here, um, like thinking about like short term neurodiversity, talking to like psychologists. I may I may do a research study. <laughs> I may do an independent research. I'm getting inspired. <laughs> And then the last of the four categories that we discussed was getting support from and with adults. And who are these adults? I think first I should probably define like what an IEP is, um, because that really helps us understand like what adults are in the lives of these students. So um, if you're not familiar, an IEP is an individualized education plan. There are also a lot of students who are neurodivergent might get those. They might also get um, a 504 plan or maybe nothing, whether that's by choice or not. But in an IEP plan, it's basically deciding, it's a plan and kind of a way of tracking like goals in that plan for the student and their individualized education needs. To build that plan and kind of support that student and in their plan, there are a lot of adults uh, involved from their teacher to their guardians, to their counselors and psychologists. There's uh, all of those adults involved. And so those adults can really, we can set up those adults to then be able to help the students. So it's kind of like a a inception like layer. And so there are a few ways that you can do that. One of them is to allow teachers to provide kind of personalized distribution or like experiences to students. So this really gets at like enabling teachers to be able to do universal design for learning, um, which I talked about a little bit earlier. So Again, like in universal design for learning, you can, for example, express your knowledge, not just through like an essay, but maybe you want to make a video about it, or maybe you want to draw about it. And so assignments is really cool. If the teacher decided to, they can just say, hey, I want you to express your understanding of X, do it in whatever way possible. And so a student can easily choose in that dropdown oh, I want to turn in a video and you can just like select that and attach that to your to your assignment and like go through the whole video making process without leaving assignments uh, within Teams for Education. If they want to, they can say, oh, let me create a Word document or a PowerPoint. And that just happens right there as well. So um, that's an example of kind of a way that you can really support that. You can also, you want to, These students are getting help, again, from these various adults, also maybe when they're doing their homework. And you might say, hey, I need, um, you know, I might want help with this homework. And maybe the parent is right there next to them, but maybe they're not. Maybe they're, you know, at, at work or somewhere else, not with them. And so how do you allow them to easily have the student share maybe their doc, their worksheet with the parent? Um, while they're not physically there, or maybe have the teacher share with the parent or with their counselor. How can you easily just not create those barriers in terms of the students getting the help and the support from those teachers in terms of sharing the content that they're maybe dealing with for school? On the other hand, maybe blocking content as well. I don't know exactly how I feel about this because, again, it kind of encroaches on autonomy in a way. I have heard some parents say, you know, it is really helpful for me to be able to like block something like YouTube um, so that they can stay more on task. Again, I'm not sure, though. Like if you talk to like adults, I always like to talk directly with that user. And so I'm not quite sure about that one yet in terms of like how that makes them feel and if they do appreciate that themselves as well. 
The next one is around amplifying student voices. So again, that Flipgrid tool, I think, is a great example of amplifying student voices. It allows a lot of students who are not necessarily comfortable speaking up in class to still have that voice while they record themselves for those videos and turn it into their teachers. Uh, might help them kind of like be more expressive and kind of come alive in a place that's a little bit more like private or not as much pressure. Uh, you can also think about amplifying student voices, though, also in, uh, in the situation of research itself, right? It talked about how you want to really hear from them, the users directly as much as possible. I get a lot of really good information from the teachers and from the parents too. It's better to hear directly from the users directly rather than, you know, have others speak for them. I think both for empowerment, but also just people are going to have different opinions um, from the person directly sometimes. But it's good to hear all of those different perspectives. The next one is capturing insights to help those adults that are supporting the students um, evaluate the students and keep track of the progress. So basically, when we're thinking about um, what the students are doing for school or outside of school, there's a lot of like tracking, whether it's like tracking of to help um, maybe with diagnosis or maybe tracking towards goals. And so can we make that easier for the adults who are doing this tracking um, to then help with either the identification of maybe um, a certain condition or help them easily track those goals so they can put more of their efforts into really working one-on-one -on -one with that student or educating the student or whatever it is and not have to like worry so much about like spending hours and hours doing like data tracking and things like that. Uh, and then the last one is around providing opportunities for students to connect to teachers for help. Um, so we talked about, you know, students connecting to uh, other students and to their teachers. Um, or sorry, it's, we talked before about students connecting with other students, um, but also how can we allow those students and teachers to connect more easily? Um, if a student has a question about their assignment, can they easily reach out to that teacher for help on that assignment? And then also adults kind of connecting with one another. Again, it's this kind of whole network of adults working in support of that student who's kind of at the center. And so they need to work together as well. So can we allow them to easily connect with one another in support of that student as well? As all these factors exist, where are the researchers? Like, are we are we doing ethnographies with these teachers? Are we doing interviews with the students? Like, where I'm trying to think about how we're situated in all of the elements that you listed. So, like, amplifying student voices, providing opportunities for students to connect with teachers to get help, um, allowing teachers to provide personalized experiences to students. Like, where does the researcher sit in the midst of all of this? I mean, I think the the researcher is kind of like. I would say like one one level removed kind of encompassing all of it, like this little like fuzzy thing in the background that's just kind of like learning from and jumping in to all points of this like little web diagram, both kind of like learning from all of these users and their different perspectives. And then also you can meet them and provide supports at these different layers too. For example, the last kind of grouping around getting support from and with adults, right? You can help the adults help the kids, 
but then you can also provide these really, you know, simple and usable experiences that support their well-being directly to the student as well. So I think it's definitely, you know, you need to learn from all of these stakeholders. And so, so far, I um, have been analyzing data directly from students. I think there's also an opportunity. Um, we have some designers also learning from uh, some teachers and educators. Um, we're just really kind of at the beginning of this journey, I would say. And there's so much more that we can learn and do and all of that. And like you said, you're still learning about this space yourself as a researcher, and you're not the expert on all things um, neurodiverse UX research. But I, I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the actual UX research itself. Yeah. Let's say you're doing an in-depth interview with a neurodivergent student, right? And you see in their facial expression that they're becoming less focused. What do you do and how do you approach that as a researcher? From the beginning, I try to avoid that situation by just formulating my research plan so that hopefully that doesn't even happen. Um, so for example, like putting them in a chair that twirls, like some students just like need more stimulation. And so actually the twirling helps them focus on the conversation or playing with like a pen or a marker. You might think, oh, they're not paying attention, but really doing that extra stimulation actually helps them pay attention to the conversation. Also like a student, students with autism or young users with autism, sometimes eye contact is just something that just um, is not something that they do a lot. Um, and so it's not necessarily, again, an indicator of them not paying attention. Um, if they're really getting off task, sometimes it's like, okay, let's just kind of gently bring them back to the topic. I don't think like it's super helpful to be like, hey, you need to pay attention to me. <laughs> like that's, you know, that's not gonna like be, make them feel good. Like that's not, yeah, I, I don't think I've, I've done that. I just kind of try to like gently, like maybe like repeat the question or um, say like, oh, okay, let's focus now like over here on this you know, in like a, a kind way. But I think a lot of that can be minimized with just having like a these, putting these thoughts into mind while designing your protocol in general. When planning and scoping a research study for neurodivergent students, are there special considerations that UX researchers should be taking? So for example, do you only use certain research methods or do you only use certain um, virtual conferencing tools, for example? There are a number of things. The one that's that come top of mind, well, one I already mentioned of like trying to make it a little bit more interactive. And honestly, I think that's a best practice for a lot of research, but I think especially for this audience. Also, I think I'm playing around with kind of the balance between having tasks and having more like um, introspective kind of questions. Um, I think some students um, who are neurodivergent do a little bit better with like, here's the task and talk about like the here and now versus like talk about, you know, like how you feel and like identifying emotions. And, you know, that's, I think just like giving options and being prepared for even like, um, I had an exercise where we were kind of mapping journeys and giving them options of hey, do you want me to write for you? Would you rather write for yourself? You know, not assuming if they have dyslexia that they don't want to write, but just kind of have being prepared with just like, again, it kind of goes down to like inclusive design, like universal design for learning. Like what are the different options we can give here? 
um, in this research plan and kind of being flexible. The other thing is, the other thing that I did in this uh, research was I thought about, okay, and again, I'm still learning. So I wasn't sure if like having like smiley faces was going to be something that like worked for students or not, um, for example, who have autism. So I said, you know, we have a few options. We have some thumbs up, thumbs down stamps. We have some smiley faces, like the green smiley, the red frown, the yellow kind of in between. Um, we have the, I had different markers, just giving a lot of options, uh, I think is important. And then also just being really clear also about like what we're going to be talking about, what the environment is, who's there, what their role should be. And I think trying to be really, it's kind of applying those principles of like design to also your uh, research where you want to be clear about what the expectations are, what's going to happen, where you are, um, so that you can avoid uh, as much like anxiety as possible as well. My biggest takeaway from my conversation with Michelle was using research to mitigate or ideally eliminate anxiety for users. I never thought of research in that exact way, but it makes a lot of sense. As researchers, we uncover and evangelize ways to make users more comfortable, and that's especially important when we take into account the range of neurodiversity in our society. Thanks for listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. I'm Imani, the host and creator. Visit yizzyresearch.com for podcast show notes and information about my UX research coaching program. Again, that's yizzyresearch.com, Y-Z-Z-I, research.com. This podcast was produced by Whisper and Mutter.